This is our eighth session on this second prayer that Paul prays for the Ephesians and for us in the book of Ephesians, chapter 3, 14 to 19, probably my favorite prayer in all the Bible because it seems to me the prayer that is bottomless. It just is inexhaustible. So let's read it in. We'll tackle this last phrase here. Tackle. We will be tackled. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named, in order that, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner person, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, being rooted and grounded or founded in love in order that you might be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. In other words, it's an experiential Love, experiential knowledge, not just inferential knowledge, in order that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So, Father, we are over our heads here. As far as rational knowledge goes, we are going beyond mere knowledge to experiential discoveries of the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ, and I ask that you would do that miracle even now. In Jesus' name, amen. What does it mean to be filled with all the fullness of God? And I want to linger mainly right here, rather than, say, running off to to 518, where it says, be filled with the Holy Spirit, or running off to some other place where it says, Christ is all the fullness of God, and you have Christ, and therefore you have fullness. That's a syllogism. It's absolutely true. It's absolutely true that if you go to Colossians 2.9, you read that all the fullness of deity, all the fullness of God is in Christ. And he's just prayed that Christ would dwell in us, So if Christ has all the fullness of God and Christ is in us, then we are filled with the fullness of God. That's absolutely not the way Paul is thinking. And the reason I say that is because he he doesn't want us to merely write syllogism. The devil can do syllogisms. Premise one, Christ has all the fullness of God. Premise two, we have Christ. Conclusion, we have all the fullness of God. That's not the way this text reads. This text is a pleading with God for a miracle to be wrought, namely, oh God, make them strong by your spirit. May Christ experientially, reality dwell, inhabit them with a persevering manifest experience that comes through faith. And as he dwells in them, may their lives send roots so deep down into him and spread their lives out on his foundation in such a way that the 
breadth and length and height and depth of Christ's love would be experienced so that their knowledge of it would surpass syllogisms? That's the idea. That's the reality. He doesn't want us to be secondhand Christians who just testify to logical syllogisms from the Bible. He wants us to go through the words, through the knowledge, through the logic to the knowledge that surpasses or the love that surpasses knowledge. So, staying right here, what does it mean to be filled with all the fullness? So, we are filled, which means there's no nook or cranny of our lives that is not touched by the fullness of God. So what is the fullness of God? And I'm going to suggest that we should interpret this fullness in terms of the breadth and length and height and depth. Isn't the point of saying that the love of Christ as we are rooted in it and founded on it, has a breadth that reaches as far as Christ can reach and a length that reaches as far as Christ can reach and a height that soars as high as Christ can soar and a depth that digs down as deep as Christ can dig. And is not that fourfold direction of extent of what Christ's love is, the fullness. That's my argument. I think he wants us to get the meaning of fullness here from this fullness. This is full. The, the love of Christ, as we are rooted in him and founded in him, is bottomless and goes higher than any height, reaches longer. There's no extent, it don't, no end to its extent, no end to its breadth. It fills all in all. It is the fullness of God. When, when we have experientially sunk our roots into Christ and built our lives on Christ and found the love of Christ to be all that it is in its breadth and length and height and depth, we are tasting, experiencing the fullness of God. So let me see if I can write that down for you and then pose one last question. I would put it first like this. The love of Christ. So this love here, which is Christ's love and God's love in Christ and Christ's love here, the love of Christ is God's gift of himself. In all the ways a human can enjoy him. And I take this, all the ways a human can enjoy him, to mean his fullness. So, when we have sunk our roots in the love of Christ and have spread our lives out on the foundation of Christ, and we have 
found Christ totally, infinitely high, infinitely deep, infinitely wide, infinitely long, then we have tasted God's gift of himself because that's what the love of Christ is. It is all the ways a human can enjoy God. That's what the love of Christ mediates to us. When you have the love of Christ in its fullness, you have all the ways a human can enjoy God graciously given to you. Let me say it another way. The fullness of God is all that God is for us through the love of Christ. Same thing, just said a different way. What does the fullness of God mean here? It is all that God is for us, all that can be enjoyed of him, all that he can give us, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places through the love of Christ, which, which leads to one last question. Why does Paul think about the, the love of Christ that way? Why, why does it come to his mind that the love of God in Christ's love for us would be the fullness of God? Well, let me give you a pointer and close with this suggestion. Do you remember in chapter 2 it said, God being rich in mercy because of the great love. Nowhere else in the New Testament is that word, that phrase used right here. God's great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And then he says, as though it's the very same thing, by grace you have been saved. So Paul aligns grace and love without any hesitation. God's love must be understood as undeserved favor, and God's grace must be understood as the overflow of his love towards undeserving people. Now, once we stir in the word grace with the love of God, we can go back to this ultimate statement in verse 6. The purpose of God's will from the beginning in predestination, governing everything he does, the purpose of his will is to the praise of the glory of his grace, which I take to mean, since it doesn't say to the praise of the glory of his justice or the praise of the glory of his wisdom or the praise of the glory of his power, but rather grace, and we could say love, is that the reason is that grace is the way we experience the power. As beautiful, the wisdom, as beautiful, the justice. As beautiful. The power of God comes to us through grace as gracious power. 
gracious wisdom, gracious justice, and the grace of it is glory. It's the glory of God. And so I think the answer to the question, why does Paul see the fullness of God, the fullness of God in the love of Christ or the love of God in Christ, rather than say in power and wisdom and justice, is because all of those serve the performance of love that enables all those things to to be experienced as graciously. The love of Christ is God's gift of himself in all the ways a human can enjoy him. And so Paul prays that we would have power to comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which goes beyond knowledge rationally and is experiential and is the mediation of all that God is for us and can be enjoyed by us.